Would you pray with me again? Father in heaven, we thank you that the word of God is a sufficient Lord God, that it is a profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, or for training in righteousness, that we may be competent and equipped for every good work. Lord God, I'm grateful that you've given us what we need. So we're coming as we come to the table prepared for us in the spiritual nourishment of your word. Would we take and eat this, Lord God? Would it uh, be also a seed that takes root and bears fruit in our lives? Uh, would we not merely be hearers of the word, but doers of the word? And would it bear fruit through us that benefits others and is a blessing to you for the sake of Christ? And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, as is our practice, we're going to have a questions and response. If you have uh, anything you'd like clarity on the understanding or help in the application from the message, if you want to submit a question regarding the sermon, uh, you can go to gfc.mills.live to be able to do so. It's the third Sunday in January, so uh, if you're still following the resolutions, if you set resolutions before the new year, then you're better than the average. Uh, stats have shown that normally by the second Friday, uh, that's when the majority drop off what they committed to do. So if you dropped off, it's okay, you're normal. Uh, and if you're still going, great job. You're a little bit above average. Uh, perseverance can be really hard. Finding motivation and hope to keep going when troubles come is very hard. That's why the writer of Hebrews wrote this letter to these people. They had persevered for a long time in a circumstance where uh, people of the Jewish faith were persecuting them for turning to Christ. And for a while, they were, they were steadfast. But it started to just to wear down and became too much. And the social pressure started to provoke some intellectual questions to make them think, is Christianity even true? Should we turn back to the old covenant and the law of Moses? They needed hope. And at this point in the letter, uh, the writer tells to them in verse 19 and verse 20 of chapter 6, just before our passage at at hand, he says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. They're so weary and they're so tired and they get to a point and say, There's a, there is a hope. It's an anchor. It will hold you fast. And it's in Melchizedek. This is a very obscure, seemingly unsignificant figure from the Old Testament, shows up three verses in Genesis, uh, one psalm, and now the author makes a uh, massive argument explaining the significance of that, that this is for our faith and for our hope. This is why Melchizedek matters. This obscure ancient priest king that's only in maybe two paragraphs in all of Scripture this is the man who resembles the priesthood of Jesus Christ. 
And the argument that he puts forward in chapter seven is that Christ's priesthood is the guarantee of your hope. The reason to keep going when you think it's easier to drift away. The motivation that he's enough when you think that you could easily slip back. Christ's priesthood is the guarantee of our hope. So if you're going to have an anchor for you for faith that hits the bottom and holds to the boat and stays fast in the waves, you need to understand Melchizedek. Christ's priesthood is the guarantee of our hope. And I think there are two arguments, two reasons why or how we can see this ancient figure exemplifies and shows the hope that we can have. Two reasons that we can know that Christ's priesthood guarantees our hope through Melchizedek. The first one is in verse 1 to 10. For these believers, turning back to the Jewish faith, it it would have meant for them that they would have had to put their trust in the Levitical priesthood again. See, the law of Moses required specific practices about offerings and sacrifices so that worshipers could stand in a righteous position where they were acceptable and validated before God. They grew up in Judaism. They believed in Jesus But in order to drift away and go back, they would have to choose the order of the Levites rather than the priesthood of Jesus. For hundreds of years, the law of Moses designated Levi. The tribe of Levi was the one who would minister the sacrifices so they could be forgiven, so they could be acceptable, so they could be validated, so they could be righteous before God. This was the hope they wanted. And I think it's a hope we want ourselves that you can wake up every morning and put your head on the pillow every night with the certain assurance that I am accepted before God. But the persecution and the social pressure was influencing them to fall away. So first, in verse 1 to 10, the author persuades them to see how much greater honor Christ has as a priest after Melchizedek than the priests of Levi in the order of Aaron. Christ's priesthood guarantees our hope because he has received the greatest honor. Verse 1 to 3 is kind of a summary of what we know about Melchizedek from Genesis chapter 14, verse 7 to 10. Would you read that with me? Verse 1 to 3 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God, most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is by first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues as priests forever. There's two things from this data, this historical data that we see about this uh, ancient priest-king figure that are important to understand how Christ has a greater honor and why that is important. First, Melchizedek, who resembles Jesus, this man received tithes from Abraham. Abraham helped conquer some kings who were unjustly trying to oppress a people, and he gained spoil from the conqueror of that battle, and a tenth of that spoil he gave to this priest king, Melchizedek. 
Why does this matter? The Levitical priests were authorized by the law of Moses to receive a tenth of all the produce that was um, farmed and made in Israel from all of their other tribes, from their brothers. It's what the people were obligated to give. They were required by law to give a tenth. Melchizedek received a tenth, but he received a tenth not by obligation of the law. He received a tenth by free will. And the Levitical priests received it from their brothers, from their equals, from all the other co-heirs of Israel. But Melchizedek just didn't receive it from the co-heirs of the brothers of Israel. Melchizedek received it from the patriarch who represented the rest of Israel, Abraham. So yes, the Levitical priesthood was, it was honorable. It was given a tenth for compensation for all that they did, but it was obligated and it was from equal to equal. Melchizedek received it by free will and received it by a greater man. Abraham recognized the support superiority of this man. He wasn't just a priest, he was also a king. His name means king of righteousness. He's the king of uh, ancient Jerusalem, Salem, which translated means king of peace. So the author argues then even because Abraham gave it to this superior man and all other Israelites, including all other the Levites, came and descended from Abraham because Abraham represented them all. The author argues metaphorically, it's as if the Levites themselves, even submissively through Abraham, gave this 10th to Melchizedek. Melchizedek has a greater honor than Levi, and uh, Christ resembles this ancient priest king. That's the first reason he has a greater honor. The second reason is punctuated by the blessing that Abraham uh, was received from Melchizedek. See, within the social structure of the time, uh, blessings were one way, and it demonstrated a power dynamic. There was one who was superior, and there was one who was inferior. And if you were in a inferior role, you wouldn't be one who would bless the other. The superior blessed the inferior. Now, Abraham isn't nobody, though. Abraham's great. Do you remember the promise that God gave to Abraham? In Genesis chapter 12, it'll be on the screen, God said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God said that Abraham would be great. Through Abraham, all families of the world would be blessed. Abraham's no slouch himself. God said he would be great, but this great man was blessed by an even greater man. Melchizedek. Christ's priesthood resembles this ancient priestly order. He has received a greater honor as priest than the Levitical priesthood did. 
Christ's priesthood is the guarantee of our hope. Here's the implication for the first readers of this letter. Why would you choose something less? If there is a priest whom you can trust in, and he has a greater honor, why would you choose anything less? He was so sympathetic to the, to the social pressures that they were feeling. And you probably feel it as well in a lot of ways. Maybe you just, you really dislike going to family gatherings just because of those small sarcastic comments that people make of your faith. Or maybe you feel like you may not have long for working in the public system because of the ethics that you carry as a Christian. Or maybe you're feeling really pressured to compromise your morals or else you're not going to be able to get a promotion in the corporate structure. And you think, well, well, maybe it's okay. Maybe I can turn away a little bit. In the same way, they at this time felt this pressure and it's like, well, the pressure, the persecution will be alleviated and we'll still have the Levitical priesthood. But if Christ has such great honor, why would we look for affirmation and value through compromise? Christ's priesthood guarantees our hope. If you are in him, your name is on his lips and he stands at the right hand of God. The honor that he received is a banner that you fly underneath. And though you may feel like it might be easier to drift away, this great one who cannot be matched is the one friend who represents you. Christ's priesthood is the guarantee of our hope. Christ has more honor than the Levitical priesthood has. Christ's priesthood also accomplished an outcome that the Levitical priesthood couldn't. This is the second reason that Christ's priesthood guarantees our hope. He has um, received greater honor and he has secured a perfect outcome. From verse 11 down to verse 28, he's making an argument that we, have, we can be perfected worshipers through Christ who is after the order of Melchizedek. You see that word in verse 11 there. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for unto the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Right? If it's, bro- if it's not broke, don't fix it. But a prophecy came in Psalm 110, which we'll address in a minute. God promised that there would be a priest other than Levi from the order of Melchizedek. Why? Because the Levitical priesthood had an insufficiency to it. It could not perfect the souls of the worshipers. Now, I want to clarify what the scripture means by perfect, because I think most of us in our day and age, when we think about perfection, we think about flawless. No mistakes. Right? Some people, when they're looking for a house... They want a magazine-ready, perfect house. No flaws, no cracks, under 12 months old, new build, perfect. It has everything and more, and it is the envy. It is is top of the class. 
That's most of the way that we think about the idea of perfect. It's flawless. But when the scripture often talks about the idea of perfection or being perfected, it's not about being flawless. It's about being fulfilled or completed. We actually might talk about getting a house this way. You know, you had to start our home and you had your kids there and then you had another kid there and then you had another kid there and now we're getting a little too small for this home and it's not fulfilling what we need as a family. We can't be the kind of family that we're meant to be. So we need to get another home and it's not perfect. It's 20 years old. We're gonna have to change some of uh, the hot water heater, but it allows us to be the family we're supposed to be. It fulfills all our needs. We don't often think about that as perfection, but that's the kind of idea that scripture is talking about here. The original language is this word, if you care, teleos. It's where we get the philosophical concept teleology. Like what is a thing's intended end and purpose? How is it supposed to become what it is meant to be? What scripture is saying is that the Levitical system could not accomplish and make you, make us, the kind of worshipers that we are supposed to be. But as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, Christ has secured for us a perfect outcome. His priestly service has allowed us to receive an eternal salvation. He is able to save to the uttermost, to the uttermost, to that full degree, and for all time, those who draw near. Let's understand how. The author argues the basis for Christ's priesthood doesn't originate from family like Levi. Levi's order came from Aaron, Aaron, the brother of Moses, who was the first high priest. Aaron, who came from the tribe of Levi. Christ's authorization came after the order of Melchizedek, and that originated from prophecy. See the like indented words in verse 17, and then the other indented words in verse 21. This is a reference to Psalm chapter 100, verse 10. God made a promise to King David that one of his sons would sit on the throne of Israel and rule over the nations forever. And in Psalm 110, David prophesies that this king would be a priest priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Without this prophecy, this ancient priest, king, obscure figure would just seem to be maybe one character that's easily passed over. But the author of Hebrews from prophecy is demonstrating that Jesus represents this man. And there's some unique things about this man. When he's introduced in scripture, there's nothing said about his genealogy. Nothing said about his father, nothing said about his mother. Melchizedek just seems to figuratively like always be. As if he had an indestructible life. Melchizedek also, having just come and gone and seeing to always be, didn't, wasn't in a successive order of priests. He didn't receive his priesthood from anyone. He didn't give his priesthood from anyone. And in the Levitical system... Uh, they um, had clear genealogy and they were prevented from continuing to serving because they would die and then they would pass on their priestly responsibilities to someone else. But what he is arguing, the author here, is that Christ has a kind of priesthood 
metaphorically like this man, Melchizedek. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Christ gained his priesthood because of his resurrection. Christ's sufficiency to perfect you, not that you're flawless, not that you're without your mistakes, but to make you the worshiper you're supposed to be so that you can know with certain assurance that you are accepted and validated before God. This perfected outcome has been accomplished because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The priests were many in number. The priests offered sacrifices morning and evening over and over. Jesus is singular and there's no one like him. And he offered his sacrifice once for all. No single priest could do this. But this Melchizedekian priesthood that is resembled in Christ, this is the anchor for your soul. This is the certain assurance that by faith alone, through God's grace, you can know that you stand before him fully accepted and validated. What we see figuratively in Melchizedek is realized literally in Christ because of his resurrection. And this takes no effort in ourselves. Christ himself has accomplished, has secured this perfect outcome for us. We can all be who we were meant to be before God, not because you have become everything you can be, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and how he stands before God, because he has an indestructible life, because he offered a sacrifice once for all, because God swore that he would have this office with an oath. No one would take it and it wouldn't be passed down to anyone. That means we can have full assurance of hope. That means you can have full assurance of hope. That when you draw near, you do not need to mask yourself up and you will not be turned away. This is our assurance. This is our hope that when we draw near to God, we will be welcomed with the warmth and kindness of God's mercy and grace. He has introduced a better hope for you in a better covenant. And he is able to save you and secure you to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for you. What's Christ doing right now that he's been ascended into heaven and stands at the right hand of God? He always lives to intercede for you. Christ's hope has secured a perfect outcome He has received a greater honor. Christ's priesthood is the guarantee of our hope. So friend, I wonder, do you have assurance and confidence that you can draw near to him today? And that if you did, you would be accepted and validated as your soul longs for. Now there's something inherent about the idea of a priest that might make us like cringe a little bit. A priest is a representative. A priest is an advocate. A priest is a teacher. 
They stand on behalf of another before God. They speak on behalf of another before God. They teach that other how they're supposed to live. You wouldn't need a coach if you would be able to do it on yourself, but every Olympic athlete and every pro team still, even though they're best in the world, still has a coach. You may know very well your legal rights, but still, when you go before a judge, you need someone else to be able to litigate a case for you. Whether it's a coach or whether it's a lawyer or whether it's a priest, roles like this reveal the inherent inability that we have to be able to prove ourselves before God. And there's often this gap that I see in people as I help them to be able to find hope and assurance that they'll be validated and accepted before God. I wonder if you have this struggle yourself. Because we can know intellectually uh, Christ has received great honor. Christ has died for my sins. Christ has interceded on my right hand, at, intercedes before God at his right hand. We can know this intellectually. So why can't we pray? Why, when you're supposed to get up, when your alarm gets you to, uh, has, tells you to get up, you prefer just to read the Bible, but you can't actually confess your sin and be confess your true self before God? Why is it so easy to be able to listen to other people pray and let the circle pass when it's time to share prayer requests? What keeps us from being able to be honest when Christ tells us that he is our perfecting, guaranteed hope? I think it's fear. Having a priest inherently reveals there's something insignificant about ourselves, there's something insufficient about ourselves, and we don't like being insecure. And in the midst of that fear, it's kind of like if a muscle is injured, uh, we see the bruise, you see the inflammation, but what's actually really happening underneath? And I think there's a variety of things that often happen to our soul, and maybe this is reflected in why you struggle so much to be able to draw near to God, even though you know these things intellectually. Maybe you're just honestly in a very similar place like these people in this passage. The pressure around you right now from the circumstances that you're in are just so hard. It's hard when you see your other friends having fun doing moral activities that you know are not an, an ethically honoring to God and you want it to as well and you keep feeling left out. It is hard when people are genuinely mistreating you for your faith and we just think it's too much. So it's easier to kind of just pull away, stop tending church a little bit less, pull out from serving, not go to small group, and I can go along, at least I'm doing the basics. But we're not being able to actually draw near with hearts sprinkled clean and full assurance. We have no hope. Some of us, though, may not feel like it's too hard, but you're just like, ah, I haven't measured up yet. There's, there's instructions in holiness that I see in scripture and I haven't, I haven't gotten there yet. 
There's an aim of how I want to see my ideal self in my work, in my body image, and I don't, I haven't measured up yet. There's expectations that my parents have had for me since I went to university and I haven't measured up yet. And because you see there's an aim that you're going for, and it might even be good and biblical, because you supposedly haven't met it there yet, you won't be your true self and pray before God and honestly confess your sins to him because you're afraid. Some people think it's too much. Some people think they haven't measured up. Others just think I'm too damaged. Like if you, I, you don't know what I've actually done. And I can't actually tell God what I've actually done. And sure, maybe God's forgiven me. I, may, God maybe has forgiven me, but like maybe he just forgave me and I know Jesus can forgive me, but he did it just to like get it off his books so that he can move on to anyone else. But there's no way God can actually care for me. The necessity of a priest shows the insufficiency of ourselves. And each one of these attitudes are reluctant to rely on the help of another. You need it. You need a priest. And Christ's priesthood guarantees our hope because he's received a greater honor. You may think it will be easier to compromise your faith and to be able to fit in by walking away a little bit when the pressure is hard. There is an honor that you have in Christ that cannot match anything that you can gain from the approval of your parents or the promotion at work or the social circles that you hang with. And you can't see it right now but one day your faith will be made sight. And the one who has a golden sash on a crown on his hands and feet made of bronze who lives in unapproachable light will look at those who can persevere with hope in him and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he will clothe you in white and you will walk in gold with paradise forever. I know it's hard now. But the honor that that circle or that promotion or that people might give you just by compromising. It's dust and it's ash. Christ's priesthood guarantees our hope. He has received a greater honor and he represents you. For those of us who are thinking, I've made, maybe I'll measure, I haven't measured up yet. I just need to measure up. You'll wait a lifetime until you measure up. And you don't need to. Christ has said that he is able to save to the uttermost. The full degree of every sin that you've done and all the damage that it's caused to the fullness of eternity, Christ is able to save to the uttermost. And every self-condemning thought that you have that comes in your head when you've fallen short or you haven't measured up, Every time a self-damning thought comes into your head, he is always living to intercede for you. See Christ the way he sees you. Christ's priesthood guarantees our hope. And for those of you who think, I'm just too damaged. I've done too much. Maybe God can forgive me, but he can't accept me. Friend, what you think is insurmountable 
and cannot be overcome in love is a snowball in a sauna to God. Here, melted, gone, forgotten. Scripture says he cast it as far as the east is from the west and his love for you is high as the heavens are above the earth. Is Christ's blood not enough for you? More than enough, infinitely enough, eternally enough. This may be what you feel. I'm too damaged. I don't measure up. It's too hard. Christ has received a greater honor. He has an indestructible life. He always stands to intercede to save you to the uttermost. Put your hope in him. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that uh, saving faith, true belief incorporates three things. It accepts, it receives, and it trusts. And fear cuts us off at the point of accepting. At accepting, I can say, well, I acknowledge that it's true. But then fear cuts us off from receiving and saying, it's true for me. Not just for others, but for me. And then resting is saying, it's true for me and my hope is in it alone. My confidence is in it alone. The relief is off. I can rest. Friends, Christ priesthood guarantees our hope. Rest in him. Draw near without fear and you can know the heart of the one who always stands to intercede for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are fickle and insecure people, Lord God. We are ambitious and prideful. We so often think that we can stand on our own two feet whether it's before others or whether it's before you. But Lord, your word has shown us that we need a priest. And if we have a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, God, may we rejoice in such a priest like Jesus, who is an indestructible life, who always stands to intercede for us, who's received a greater honor. Father, would this truly be an anchor for our souls? And God, would you help us to see the ways in which our fear unmoors us from this anchor and causes us to capsize? And would you help us to take you at your word, to acknowledge these things as fear and pain, but to trust that your grace is greater still. And we may, though we may feel like walking away or packing in, would we persevere with hope holding fast and drawing near to you day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've just heard God's word preached, and now we'll ask some questions to help us dig a little deeper into the passage. So, Jason, question for you. Why does, even now, the hope in Christ that we have sometimes feel like it's only for the afterlife rather than for this life now? Why does the hope in Christ we have, excuse me? Why does the hope in Christ we have seem only for the afterlife uh, and only for now? Uh, there can be a variety of reasons for it. Well, one of them, and I can speak from experience and from scripture. Um, 
Gabriel Liu, our brother who's teaching in Grace Kids 2 this week, preached an amazing message several months ago on 2 Corinthians that says uh, the eternal weight of glory cannot be compared. The sufferings of this present life cannot be compared to the eternal weight of glory that is uh, waiting for us. So there's a variety of reasons. Number one, uh, it's because of the present sufferings of this life. They're real and they're painful and they're hard. Whether you read Job or whether you read about the Apostle Paul, it's hard to see that there's hope in this life because there's real pain now. The other reason is that um, we lack a supportive community that can actually help us in our hurts when I've gone through very severe pain. Like, it's really hard to actually be able to help one another in our hurt so that we can actually hope. And community is one of the means of grace that helps inspire our faith. And really, what uh, anchors us to hope is faith and truth. And there's such a variety of factors, uh, the pain itself, the lack of support, and the weakness of our faith that can prevent us from being able to hold on and to hold fast. So I say, ultimately, um, you need someone to help you consider how our faith may be faltering and how we can be able to hold on even in the smallest of ways because there is hope in life now. The Apostle Paul says that if we don't have hope, then we're most to be pitied. We, the soul really operates, I think of it like physiotherapy. Uh, when you get in pain and you're hurt, it just aches and you don't know how healing is sometime, but you need someone to help diagnose where the pain is and then you need to strengthen your faith. So if you find like you don't have hope in this life, help find someone to help you strengthen your faith. Mm. Thanks for that. And you spoke a lot about what it means to put our hope in Christ and the hope that we have in him. So a question for you is that is, am, are we still loved if we don't put our hope in God now? Uh, I would say yes, we are still loved if we don't put our hope in God now. Um, I think uh, the Christ's parable of the... Uh, lost coin and uh, lost sheep and lost son. Uh, We most often think about the prodigal son, but all of them communicate the same message. There are things that God has possession of that go away from his presence. And there's a joy he have in that thing that is his, that he wants to express in and over that thing that he can't fully express over us until we return to him. So even while we feel lost, that joy God has in you and love God has in you is there, but inexpressible because you are not with him. You can experience the joy and the love of God the closer we are to him. And if there are times that we lack hope, that doesn't mean that he does not love you. It means that we, uh, how can we draw near to him again to experience and see the smiling face that shines down on us? Thanks for that. Well, one of the key figures that you talked about in this passage was not only Jesus, but Melchizedek. Mm-hmm. So a question about him, is Melchizedek not human? How can he have an indestructible life, no genealogy, no beginning of days or end of life? Right. So there's a nerdy theological discussion about who about Melchizedek is. The two uh, complex words are, is he a theophany or is he a... Is it an example of typology? So there are figures in the Old Testament that people identify as theophanies. They are pre-incarnate instances of the Son of God on earth um, 
before his incarnation. An example of that would be the commander of the Lord's army in uh, the book of Joshua, or the angel who visited Abraham and Sarah. Um, it, it uses Hebrew language that expresses that it's divinity, and it calls it the angel of the Lord, but it's more than an angel. And the other typology is like figures in the Old Testament that resemble or that look like uh, Jesus, uh, but are not. David, Adam are types of Christ. So I believe that uh, the passage exemplifies that in talking in, uh, I can't remember the exact verse, but he uses uh, verse three. It says, but resembling the son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Um, I think he's using Melchizedek as um, an allegorical type of Christ in the way that Paul would allegorically interpret uh, two mountains in the book of Galatians as well. I don't think he's some kind of um, infinite kind of sub-divine creature, but I think the absence of a genealogy is an allegorical resemblance that he is an indestructible life like Christ. And final question for you, and then I'll pray. What disciplines can you recommend to Christians here to help really bring home the reality that uh, not only does God love us, but that he likes us and delights in us as well? Uh, great. That's wonderful. Um, so I use the analogy physiotherapy, again, for the care of souls. I think it is very, very helpful. I'm actually getting physiotherapy right now because my back hurts. And you go to a physiotherapist and they're like, oh, I got pain here and I think it did it because of this. So okay, you got pain there, but it's affected you this way and it's affected you that way. And it's not actually because of that, it's because of this. And you actually uh, need to put in work and strengthen, the, loosen these areas, strengthen these areas. That happens to the soul a lot. And often in physiotherapy, it's just like do the same thing with like these little one pound weights. It's like, I can weigh more than that. But it's like, ah. So sometimes it's really hard just like, hey, how many times have you read like John 8 with the woman caught in adultery? And like the grace that Jesus shows to her. And you're just like, yeah, I'm going to skip on that. Like, hey, maybe you need to intensely focus on like Psalm 103, John chapter 8. Passages like this. Luke 17, where it talk, I think that's at 14, 15, where it talks about the prodigal son. And don't just pass over it. Like, at, read it slowly. Read it again. Ask God to help you. Admit you don't believe it. And read it and read it. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. Remember, faith is accepting. It's true. Uh, receiving, it's true for me. And resting, I am confident in it. So take time, don't rush. Spiritual growth isn't like a microwave meal. So, Thanks for that. Let's pray now. God, we thank you for your, your holy and inerrant word. We thank you that we have a, a greater hope in Jesus for the future, Father. I pray that you'd help us to uh, always keep our focus and our attention on him and to, to dig deep into your word, Father, and to see how it addresses us, Father. Help us to see the great love with which you've loved us and the great hope we have in you. Your son's name we pray, amen.